You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains, DLTs, and cryptocurrencies. In today's episode, we are joined by Kyle Rojas, who is the Head of Global Business Development and Partnerships at Agent Node, which is the initial team behind the Graph protocol. The Graph is an indexing protocol that queries networks like Ethereum and IPFS and organizes the data, making it easily accessible for various applications. With that, Kyle, a very warm welcome to you on a show from both Nikhil and myself. Thanks so much. I appreciate you guys having me. So, uh, Kyle, you have a very interesting background. You have served in the Air Force uh, and then you got into investment banking and uh, you're VP of Goldman Sachs. And uh, now you're the business development head for a top crypto project. So, uh, could you tell our audience a little bit more about your background? What got you into crypto and blockchain and uh, how your journey has been so far? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I was, I was born and raised a, a pretty, pretty wild kid in California, I'd say. Um, I enlisted in the Air Force right after high school at the young age of 17. And then I, I served around the world for 12 years before choosing family over a, a really successful military career at the time. And being in the military my whole adult life, I had to, kind of learn how to be a civilian. So to make the transition to the civilian world, I got my MBA at Rice University here in Houston and then worked, like I said, almost seven years at Goldman Sachs, but realized it just wasn't the life I wanted to lead. It wasn't really fulfilling for me towards the end to only have a mission focused on my bottom line. And luckily, while at Goldman, I started participating in the crypto space around late 2016. And along the way, became a true believer that uh, Web3 technology is the big part of the future, and it's uh, just a better way to build for the world. Originally got introduced by a, a close friend of mine, childhood friend, who's kind of a black hat, gray hat guy um, in the space, and and then fell in love after that. So I quit Wall Street, finally got the guts, really got the kitchen pass for my wife from the boss, and then I dove head first into my blockchain career. I'm a, over a year and a half. And in my Web3 life at Edge and Node, uh, which is the founding team behind the graph. And there, my official title is um, Global BDM Partnerships, though I help with a ton of things across the entire ecosystem. I just do anything needed to make the graph a success. And it was, it was a tough decision for me, but in the end, it was, after going through the simulations, fairly easy because I can always go back to finance or whatever else. But I can't be inside helping build uh, really a, you know, maybe once or twice in a lifetime technological shift. So it was more regret minimization on my part. And I haven't regretted anything since. Thanks for sharing your story with us, Kyle. To quickly jump into the company that you're working with today, uh, Agent Node, like you mentioned, you know, it is the main company behind the graph protocol. Could you tell us a little bit about the history of the company and the Graph Protocol and uh, how it is funded today? Sure. 
Uh, the Graph was founded originally in 2017 by Yaniv Tall, Brandon Ramirez, and Jonas uh, Pullman. And they were dev tooling um, folks from things like Salesforce, MuleSoft, and other brand name shops. Originally receiving funding uh, and then followed up with other fundings by incredible and fairly technical VC shops like Reciprocal Ventures, Coin Fund, Multicoin Capital, Lemnus Cap, Coinbase Ventures, and even brand name uh, TradFi folks like Tiger Global, and then more. But I'd say as they continued building, the team obviously grew and the first product, the hosted service, was launched in 2019. And as the hosted service gained some pretty incredible adoption across the space, the team was always busy working on what the graph was always meant to be. Uh, so working on R&D on GRT token economics, GRT being the work utility token of the ecosystem, and then building out the decentralized network, which launched in late 2020. And again, GRT is the work utility token and launched around the same time as the network, at which point the graph was simply a, a decentralized protocol, just a technology layer that had no employees. And Edgenode was founded at that time as the first core developer team working on the graph, and the Graph Foundation was formed as well, the nonprofit entity stewarding the ecosystem. And since then, the Graph Foundation, which handles grants for the ecosystem, gave five other core developer teams large grants to work full-time on the Graph technology. And, and here we are with, with Edgenode at around 60 people across six continents, a fully remote team, five core developer teams making up probably another 80 or more people in the Graph Foundation with around 10 or more. So probably 150 people plus working full-time on the technology and ecosystem, as well as many hundreds in the community that are both incentivized by grants, but also just passionate about working on this. So it's it's been quite the journey. And what's even more fun is that it's still super early in the build-out of the ecosystem. So Kyle, so uh, you had mentioned that uh, your company is the lead main company, and uh, then there is the foundation that makes grants. Uh, and uh, obviously, this decentralized journey, you said it starts in 2020, so it's not been that long. But I'm still curious to see, have you started noticing uh, major players? Uh, how how uh, have there been kind of companies also co-investing in along with you in this protocol? and? And, and trying to uh, contribute to its development. Yeah, I would say that we don't really think of it as an investing really at all. We think of it as, and what matters to us is building out this technology for the world. So there are participants in a lot of different ways, and I'm sure we can get into the different ways people participate. But if you think of how these core devs came about, they started as small grants, and the Graph Foundation gives many dozens of grants in each wave. I think they're on wave six or seven or something. So they've given out quite a bit in grants to across four verticals. One is, and most importantly, protocol enhancement and dev tooling. Um, but close to, if not just as important, is community building and education. And so there's a lot of different people working on this. There are businesses let's say infrastructure and staking providers that have joined as indexers, which we could talk about. And, and some of those are brand name 
businesses um, that either were early supporters of the graph ecosystem or staking providers like uh, Protofire, um, and Figment, and others that have really large indexing operations that can actually be very lucrative if you do it correctly. So besides that, mm-hmm. there's also other businesses that are building on top of the graph because the graph is just a data layer. And folks like Playgrounds are are working to <clears throat> provide a, a middle layer and a company on top of the graph to provide services for folks that want to utilize the graph technology. But then if you think of other players that are invested, I wouldn't say invested, I would say participating in a large way. It's it's just using the graph as a middle layer that no one really sees. And then massive crypto Web3 businesses have been built on top because the graph provides data for them, which drives user adoption. Uh, like DeFi Summer, the, the Graph Tech actually kind of powered DeFi Summer in general and is now powering much more than just DeFi Summer from NFTs, DAOs, data analytics companies that are fully powered by the Graph, bridges across chains, and much, much more. And that's even before some of the use cases that are popping up like TradFi and luxury brand folks that are using with the Web3 ecosystem to either build communities or transact across the globe that are using the graph tech either through third parties, like I said, businesses building on top or using it directly themselves. So it really does power anything that needs blockchain data. And that means that everyone can utilize and build with the graph and on top of the graph, as well as I'd say um, add value to what this technology does for the world. And that's what's good about open source building because it increases the pace of innovation, permissionless open source building. And people can add to something even without being a full-time employee or even receiving a grant because we're building in the open, we're building with the world. And that pace of innovation is, I'd say the pace of innovation in general is the lead and adaptability is the lead leading indicator for the success and thrivability and even survivability of anything from a city to a company to a technology to even an organism like a, a species like humans. So that's exciting about the Web3 space in general, building open source, being able to collaborate and taking away and really disrupting the, the traditional models of Web2 and TradFi, which their direct incentive is to decrease innovation, to decrease competition, to squash competition by creating competitive moats and swallowing up competitors and really killing off competitors, which again, decreases innovation and therefore increases fragility. So I think that this is just the more fun way to build and more effective way to build to innovate faster for the world. So... Just to talk a little bit about the protocol itself, Kyle, uh, and I, I thought you laid out very well what the value proposition of the Graph protocol is in the larger blockchain and crypto space. Like your team describes, it's kind of like the Google of blockchains, right? And uh, as in, it helps query data from different blockchains. So, uh, but for our audience, could you explain in simple terms how it is different from something like, say, a block explorer, for example? Sure. I think it's probably best to, to zoom out and start from the highest level, and then we could dive in. So what you mentioned in its simplest terms, what Google does for the world's 
internet information. The graph does for data recorded on blockchains. So we're rebuilding the internet better with, as I mentioned, open source, transparent and community led infrastructure. But to dive deeper on that, the graph is decentralizing the data indexing and query layer for every project in the space. Uh, currently integrated with 39 chains and networks and the graph ecosystem speaking with probably 60 to 70 other networks that will eventually hopefully index all chains across the entire uh, blockchain ecosystem. But until the graph, no projects had worked to solve the problem of reading data off of blockchains, let alone organizing it and making it immediately accessible for users in a scalable way. And to get to your question, because of that, until the graph, developers had to either manually sift through transactions, as in digging through Etherscan or any other scan across chains, or they had to run their own full archival nodes, index the data themselves, and then build and maintain their own APIs, wasting scarce and extremely expensive developer resources that should be spent on building and improving a project's core product and services. And with, let's say, a block explorer, when you're thinking of different use cases with regards to DeFi or NFTs, when you're trying to sift through historical information with millions of transactions being added every day, in many cases, it's extremely hard. And even, in even probably more cases, it's practically impossible. Even with building good scripts, eventually it just doesn't scale. So the graph solves that problem. It enables developers to build open APIs called subgraphs with which projects can point to the exact information they need for many of the integrated blockchains and networks. And that data will be indexed, organized, and instantly available to populate into their application or website forever. And, and happy to take a deeper dive on how it works if you'd like. I think that's a great idea. Kyle, so uh, you mentioned that uh, there is an indexing. Uh, so Graph is basically indexing the blockchain. And uh, you also mentioned that uh, the graph is divided into subgraphs and that it's an incentivized model. You basically incentivize people or developers to create their own subgraphs. And the, those subgraphs basically index various chains. So how do you actually know that, okay, this particular subgraph that this developer claims he's indexing is actually indexing anything. It could be he's uh, not got the latest version of the data. Maybe it's got an old snapshot. How do you actually make sure that the subgraphs are actually performing real-time indexes and that you have good quality indexes overall? Yeah. I'd say it, it all starts with subgraph technology. It just starts there. And again, subgraphs are the open APIs that people use within the graph ecosystem, which are written in GraphQL to set up what type mm -hmm. of data, what schemas and .yamls they want, or after building a .yaml, uh, what type of the data they want within their website or application for users to see. I'd say a simple analogy to help answer that question is to think of indexing as maintaining a massive Excel document with all the information an application might need whenever a user goes to it. And the subgraphs are just the headings for the columns and rows, the directions on what to fill in. And then indexers fill in all the information on that massive Excel doc, adding data with every new block. When someone like us heads to an application, the indexer populates that information, the UI, 
in less than 100 or, or around 100 milliseconds, let's say, which is instantaneous. Another way to put that is subgraphs are just a blueprint for a house to be built, and the indexers are the ones that get the history of any chain. Let's call it the chain's history, the materials to build the house, and they build the house based on that subgraph blueprint. So many ways to look at it. But to answer your other question of how do we know it's correct data, that's why the graph only concentrates right now with on-chain data, verified by consensus, audited by the world, every single block. So it's deterministic data, which means 10 out of 10 times you get the correct information, as opposed to anything off-chain is non-deterministic. You're not going to get the same exact information every single time. So the graph is only working with deterministic on-chain data, and that means when that information flows in, you will be getting the correct data based on on-chain consensus. Does that help answer a little? Uh, yeah, a little bit, but just to uh, uh, elaborate a little bit on that. Uh, so the index itself is in the uh, in in is it in the is it in a blockchain or the index the data that the indexers. So when we say the indexer goes and populates the uh, uh, populates the subgraph with data, the subgraph is the heading, right? And you, as you correctly pointed out, we are you know focused on on-chain data, so the data itself is fine. But how do you know that the indexer is getting the latest snapshot of that data? Yeah, it's a great question. So after a subgraph is built, there are now over 460 indexers acting as that technical backbone, the decentralized network, and using GRT, their self-stake, and other delegation stake to index subgraphs. So taking that blue pin. Okay. And what they do is they run a Postgres database operation themselves to house all the information adding to that database okay. block by block. So when we go to a Dapper website, that information automatically flows in. And the indexer selection algorithm is extremely important because that filters through all of the different indexers to see which ones are up to the chain head, so data freshness, see which ones have the best speed, the lowest cost, and can actually fulfill the queries that are being sent. So each indexer all over the world, and they are all over the world, which leads to faster latency, faster sync time, and more, they need to maintain up-to-the-chain header, up-to-date information within their Postgres databases, or they would not be selected by the indexer selection algorithm. And that's important because if there's only one indexer, there's only a centralized operation, there's no way to know if that information is correct. So when people go to the decentralized network and they might be receiving older information, that is a feature, not a bug, in that when you go to a centralized provider, you simply trust that it's up to date. Um, but that's what okay. the indexer selection algorithm does. And that's the resiliency and robustness and actually factual information that can be provided by a decentralized provider network. Right. So uh, how does the indexer actually prove uh, to this algorithm that they have? Is there like a, uh, like we have proof of stake, is there like a proof of uh, indexing uh, that, that they can do? That's exactly right. It's a POI, proof of indexing, which right now is an attestation. And that attestation okay. can be disputed by what are called fishermen. So it is a manual process right now. And if there is a dispute, and through an arbitration process by arbitrators, they can be seen to have correct information or incorrect information, 
And the disincentive to provide false information is through a slashing mechanism via that proof of indexing or POI mechanism right there. Right. Okay. So that's that's basically where the they're not exactly at the tippy top because you they you you need a certain amount of time for the uh, slashing to happen and people to dispute this. Right. There is a uh, a certain amount of time required for verification, which is why the index may not be as up to date as maybe a centralized index. And that's the kind of trade off that we're doing. Yeah, that's how it works right now. We haven't seen. I think we've only seen slashing a couple of times with either someone that had an RPC provider that was providing incorrect information and or just maybe maliciously, I'm not sure exactly what happened, uh, provided bad information. But that's how it is right now. But we've been Mm -hmm. working for, I think, over three years on verifiable queries, which means outsourcing the manual innovation, the time it takes and the gas costs to go through that arbitration process and POI process and outsource it to practical algebra via what's called snark technologies, which is a kind of ZK mm-hmm. uh, realm application that yeah, okay. uses practical algebra to prove without manual intervention. And <clears throat> that will be a magnum opus for this ecosystem when there needs to be no interaction whatsoever. You simply prove via mathematical proofs, which are, are pretty intense right now, um, very long. So we're working through how that looks in practice, in production, and um, might be a ways out, probably midterm or more. But that is something the ecosystem working on for, for years. And when that happens, that will, will truly change the game of decentralized trustlessness with regards to information. Oh, okay, cool. So yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Thank you for illustrating that. So uh, when I go through the uh, graph documentation, there is this particular type of, let's say, actor, right, in the in your system uh, called a curator, right? So 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 if if the delegators and this indexing algorithm, the uh, the assessing algorithm assess the index to make sure that the data is correct and uh, it's not malicious. What exactly is the role of a curator? Sure. There's a few different roles. So there's data consumers, subgraph developers, which are more of the demand side. And to fulfill the technology, naturally indexers are the backbone. But how do you incentivize indexers that have overhead with their archival nodes, their graph node um, instance, and running the Postgres database operations to actually sync and maintain the terabyte storage as well as just the database operations themselves. So curators use GRT to point to subgraphs that they think will gain the most adoption. And with the amount of GRT going up, it linearly incentivizes or increases incentives for indexers to sync. So therefore, therefore curators right now are essential And they incentivize indexers to sync any given subgraph with the amount of GRT that's curated on any given subgraph. So if there's no GRT curated on a subgraph, indexers have no GRT incentive to go sync an entire subgraph, which takes time, takes, you know, overhead. uh, And that's an important role. And then another role is delegators, the most passive role who, let's say, think of them as stakers who can't index data themselves. 
So to secure and scale the network, they delegate their GRT to indexers who use that capacity to index more subgraphs, keeping a small amount of rewards for themselves and then passing the rest back to curators through query fees and then delegators through indexer rewards and query fees. So it's a fairly elegant system to make sure everyone incentivizes others to um, with proper behavior and, and growth of the network while disincentivizing malicious behavior in various ways. So basically, uh, curators uh, will obviously signal that, okay, these with their GRT, that these are subgraphs that are worth uh, using correct and and delegators uh, are also signaling with their GRT that okay this particular indexer we are supporting them and you mentioned that they get a kickback uh, or a certain amount of money whenever the indexers are paid their fees uh, so so how does that work in terms of uh, reputation do do the curators and the delegators get impacted by a slash slashing event uh, do they lose money or do they do they lose reputation or something no why, why would a curator basically not just point to his buddy uh, or to somebody who gives him who promises him a bigger uh, share of the fees regardless of the quality of the data yeah so curators are only incentivized through query fees so if curators put their grt in a subgraph that won't have query fees they won't earn anything because curators through protocol mechanisms um, automatically get 10% of all query fees collected by indexers. So the incentive is you have to find, if you want to be a successful curator, you have to find good subgraphs that will have volume. And then delegators, it would be unfair if a delegator went to an indexer, the indexer acted maliciously to slash delegators. So delegators do not have any slashing when an indexer is slashed. Okay. So so then again, you said that curators are incentivized based on the query fees, but uh, it's also the portion of their query fees, right? So suppose as an indexer, I say, okay, the other index is uh, better than mine, but I'll give you 20% more of the query fees than the other guy. Wouldn't that actually incentivize the curator to go after the lower quality indexer? No, because indexers can't share more or less than 10% of query fees. Ah, okay. So that's fixed. It's fixed and it's automatic when GRT allocations are pulled back and indexers collect their query fees. It automatically shares 10% of the curated community and the curators only signal on subgraphs. They don't signal to indexers. So they are indexer agnostic. They are incentivized to find the right subgraphs. Delegators, on the other hand, are incentivized to find the best indexers, the most performant, the ones who uh, act the most um, honestly and, and have the best allocations because an indexer can be more profitable if they're better within the ecosystem. You can look at things like APY. You can look at query success. You can, you can look at... Um, how much economic security there is, meaning how much self-stake an indexer has. And mm -hmm. that means if they're slashed, it would be a bigger disincentive to the indexer. But again, it doesn't flow through the de delegator. It would not affect the delegator if, if the indexer was slashed. Okay. 
That makes a lot of sense. Um, so, Kyle, so in your uh, experience and uh, given uh, the three years and uh, uh, the, what you've seen so far, uh, obviously indexing is something uh, that is of use to uh, distributed apps, right? DAP. I mean, it's a it's an underlying technology. It's not a, it's not a end user facing technology. So uh, obviously there is. It makes more sense to do indexes on chains that have more uh, developer i mean more uh, applications uh, and more uh, developers that need this kind of indexing so uh, obviously ethereum is a pretty easy one to kind of figure out that that would be probably a popular one that uh, everybody will index but other than uh, ethereum uh, what which ones have you seen can you kind of like give us a sneak peek as to what might be an up and coming blockchain uh, from uh, from the perspective of uh, development or interest to in index? Right now, there are twenty three mainnets and sixteen test nets integrated with the hosted service, and those are most of the biggest EVM compatible layer ones and layer twos and side chains. So Ethereum, Avalanche. Arbitrum Optimism, and and many more. Uh, Polygon, of course. And then there's some non-EVMs like Near, Solana, Cosmos Hub, uh, Osmosis in the Tenement ecosystem. And, and, and the ecosystem is speaking to many more. But those are on the hosted service. Right now, Ethereum, it, up until this quarter, was the only chain for two years on the decentralized network. And just this quarter... Four other chains have been added. So Avalanche, Arbitrum, Gnosis Chain, and Celo. And more chains have been announced. So the the push right now is to get all hosted service chains over to the decentralized network to actually unlock decentralized indexing and an unbeatable uptime and actually unbreakable data. And the ecosystem's, like I said, probably speaking to 60 or 70 more. And it's based on... Everything from the business case, how much adoption they have, how many DAUs or data active users they have, how many developers are in the ecosystem that will build out subgraphs and lead to queries and therefore increase demand of the overall query ecosystem. So there's no real alpha to give on any up and coming chains, though you can just look to what has the most adoption because in the end, indexers need to be incentivized to sync on subgraphs. And that means they need to see the forward-looking possibility of query volume. And so if there's no developer activity on a chain, there's probably going to be no incentive for an indexer to spin up the archival node and spend their GRT allocation on those subgraphs. So I just pay attention to developer activity, which (laughs) in my opinion is the most bullish indicator leading indicator of success of anything because the more builders are in an ecosystem, the more uh, innovation that will happen and the more users that will be adopted. Right. Among the the blockchains that you mentioned uh, that have been moved to the decentralized one, you mentioned Arbitrum. And uh, I seem to remember hearing that you guys uh, are transitioning to Arbitrum, right? Is, Is that the blockchain that or the level two chain that you guys are planning to use uh, going forward? 
Correct. So up to now, the ecosystem and whenever you're participating with the network has utilized Ethereum and the ecosystem chose Arbitrum as a layer two scaling solution. Right now, billing is already on Arbitrum, but transactions when you're either launching subgraphs and or if you're an indexer collecting allocations or a curator putting GRT, delegator delegating GRT to indexers is right now on Ethereum. And the the core dev ecosystems in the process of moving the protocol fully to Arbitrum so that each transaction doesn't take five to ten dollars, it takes you know five to ten cents. And that will be exciting to increase efficiency across the entire ecosystem, decrease the overhead and costs for everyone from indexers, curators, uh, delegators, and of course, subgraph developers that have to go through uh, multiple, uh, you know, few steps to publish and get everything on the network to utilize it. So it's, it's going to be a really fun time to see how efficient the network gets and how little it costs to interact when that happens over the next uh, couple to few months. Right. So uh, from uh, the perspective of the migration itself, uh, are you planning to move your tokens, the GRT token, into uh, Arbitrum? Are you moving it? Uh, how, how are you planning to migrate the community into this new uh, new blockchain? Well, that's still an R&D, which is why it's not fully launched yet, though GRT is already across multiple chains, including Polygon and Arbitrum. So people can interact on Arbitrum themselves if they want to go through that process, though it's not fully built into the UI yet. So eventually everything will be on Arbitrum. GRT is already enabled on Arbitrum and, and everyone will be able to interact that way. Though as to the heart of your question, what will that look like for users and data consumers and participants? It will be the hopefully the most elegant and simple as as possible and the product team is like i said an r&d on figuring out how that will actually look in production so more to come on that over the coming months just to quickly jump in and uh, maybe just step back a little bit and talk a little bit about the graph foundation itself so kyle I, I saw on the website you know you have also these different entities within the ecosystem like streaming fast semiotic labs the guild could you just touch on that a little bit and tell us about you know what what these teams are you know what their role is yeah definitely each each core developer team probably started out with a smaller grant to prove out a use case uh, of protocol enhancement or developer tooling and then once identified by the graph foundation they'd be able to add a lot more and, and the Graph Foundation wanted them to work full time. They got a, a much larger grant vesting over a long time. I think it's eight years for most. And if you think of what each brings, uh, each has this, this own core competency and or technology that it's bringing to the ecosystem. So the guild is a GraphQL shop, pretty much the GraphQL rock stars that are bringing in and really inventing new use cases for GraphQL to make subgraphs um, more capable. Then you look at streaming fast. They used to be, uh, well, they brought in what's called Firehose technology, which is uh, the technology to be able to stream directly from the blockchain and which has led to substreams, which right now subgraphs are assembly script based APIs. Substreams are Rust based APIs 
that use that streaming firehose primitive and enable parallel data processing, which increases indexing and seeking speeds, often to the order of 100x magnitude. And that's been a big developer, uh, I'd say, pain point. And that's why substreams are so important for the biggest subgraphs, because sometimes it can take months, in some cases like Uniswap, um, uh, some of the Uniswap subgraphs to sync their subgraphs because it's so much data. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to months, substreams, again, based on pro- Firehose primitive, are able to sync subgraphs uh, or substreams or that data, let's say, in a matter of hours. So going from months to hours is a massive upgrade in developer experience. There's others like GraphOps that are providing protocol enhancement and economics support, as well as infrastructure support in a lot of ways. And then there's semiotic labs that used to be semiotic AI. And semiotic labs has been a core developer for over two years and using MLRL or machine learning reinforcement learning, what people know as AI, within the protocol to make every participant's interactions much more efficient to make the protocol much more efficient. And they're also going through R&D and thinking through how, since right now you mentioned it's a developer tool, a very technical tool right now, how to make it more externally focused to not just be a developer tool, but for anyone who doesn't want to have to interact with GraphQL to be able to come in get you know verbally or or type a query or just type anything like how many ENS users increased from March 2021 to to May 2022 and imagine you could just type that in in a Google level search bar experience and then MLRL think of chat GPT automatically building a GraphQL query for the user uh, that's searching for the data and it builds the query and serves the data almost instantaneously so that's what semiotics doing and working on and thinking through. And really every core dev is doing a little something a little different, whether it be going to the cross-chain ecosystem on the network, to MLRL, to GraphQL, and so on. And then of course, Edge and Node is the founding team behind the graph and, and the core developer working mostly on directly on the product and ecosystem. So there's a lot of people bringing a lot of different superpowers. And this is probably still just the beginning of what the core dev team's uh, ecosystem will look like over time. Ah, okay. Uh, it it was inevitable that we would have a podcast uh, where ChatGPT gets mentioned. Yeah, I was just waiting for the <laughs> for the one. <laughs> and really, it's all based and, on large uh, language models that just take a bunch of information. But right now, ChatGPT bases its its um, output on non-deterministic information. It uses incorrect information a lot of times to provide answers from the internet because there's a lot of false information out there. But imagine if you could have that same experience with verifiable on-chain data. That's that's what's an exciting idea that the ecosystem is, is just starting to think through right now. No, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I see that. There is quite a bit of... Uh interesting stuff you can do even without uh, going to that level right i mean you i could i can almost imagine uh, uh, the questions that you can type into like chat pt about you know draw me a graph of uh, a comparative graph of the performance of blockchain x versus blockchain y or 
and and you could kind of come out with that there's a lot of stuff that uh, you know these kind of uh, tools unlock uh, but i actually wanted to kind of uh, double click a bit on the stream based implementations that you were talking about earlier uh, so you mentioned that it's a rust based uh, implementation and it's focused on improving the indexing speed or parallelizing the indexing speed uh, I was wondering, uh, have there been thought or uh, interest in uh, uh, doing streaming itself of, of you know, streaming of media, streaming of information, like a real-time stream from the index? Uh, so it's kind of like maybe an implementation of uh, a decentralized YouTube or for something like that, uh, where you could get larger types of information out of IPFS and uh, kind of combine it with these indexes to kind of uh, create a, I don't know, maybe a search engine that you could search through decentralized videos on, for example. Uh, have there been kind of use cases like that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a lot of thinking, a lot of interest, and things actually working in production. So you think of, again, this is a builder tool right now. Who is doing that? Live peer has been doing that for a long time. The the video streaming space. So you think of a a YouTube disruptor and their on-chain data is powered by the graph. Originally on Ethereum, they moved Mm -hmm. to Arbitrum and they're going to be moving to the decentralized network in the near future. And uh, so that's one use case, but there are many. And you you mentioned uh, search bars and stuff. There'll be so many businesses. There are so many businesses being built and I'll leave them to announce uh, what they're doing when they want to based on their business sure. models. But yeah, it's what's great is the graph is simply a data layer. It's a technological layer sitting in between the blockchain and the front end, actually in between the developers and then the front end. So just powering whatever data people need from on chain. And when you're streaming anything real time, you need reliable, fast, um, high uptime data layers, and, and that's what the graph provides. So yeah, it's it's happening right now in a lot of different spaces, not just video streaming. So it all depends on on what builders want to build, and they could just use the the graph for on chain data. Have have there been any uh, attempts or uh, thoughts to kind of create almost like a meta uh, graph uh, or a meta solution? Because uh, when I kind of approach this uh, from with my business application or business architect hat on one of the things that i would consider as a, a risk for my uh, the system that i'm building would be that i choose the wrong subgraph right uh, maybe i choose subgraph a and for whatever reason it goes out of business or the indexes get slashed or whatever so have there been kind of like uh, tooling or uh, efforts built around being able to have backup subgraphs, right? So you choose two or three, and uh, if one is not performing to your parameters, it or you can automatically switch to another one and get the same data. Uh, or is that kind of like more left to whoever is doing the application building? That is powered by subgraph developers. So the subgraph developers, I'd say the subgraphs are just as um, are based on how skilled the developers are and and graphql is just the most efficient tool to do that and however good a subgraph is that's how good the data will be 
so that there is redundancy in a lot of ways on some of the most powerful subgraphs that other people in the community that just want redundancy can build or even clone another subgraph. There's a lot of cloning of subgraphs because they are open source if they want to launch it on another chain. And so the answer is yes. But what's important about the Web3 ecosystem is the data that you'd want is always on chain. It's unimpeachable, unchangeable, verified, auditable, and audited every block. So that's what's important. And the information you want will always be there. And if for some reason a subgraph is deprecated, someone can clone it, clone a subgraph and, and just redeploy it uh, or republish it on the network and make sure it's synced. So there's, that's what's really important about the Web3 ecosystem as opposed to, let's say, Google or other um, large Web2 technology companies is they can kill sites. You go to killedbygoogle.com and you just see all the different platforms that have been shut down, again, due to the incentives of Web2 technology companies. And um, in Web3, that, that can't happen. You have data that is stored forever. Yeah, the reference data is, it may be slower to get it, but it's always there. Yeah, and, and it's speeding up. I'd say we're still so early in the Web3 evolution that it took the internet decades to get to where it is now. And we're only, you know, not even a decade into the Ethereum ecosystem. And you see these layer two solutions speeding things up with optimistic and eventually ZK rollups, as well as potentially layer three ecosystems. And, and let's say the kind of sagas who are creating chainlets and others that are having more app specific applications. So it's just the Web3 primitive and um, Web3 platform of decentralized applications that that drives all of this unbreakable and unkillable data, which is fun. Right. Just to move a, a little bit into the future, uh, what uh, do you see uh, coming down the pipe for the graph and for blockchains in general? What's your perspective in terms of, you know, we, uh, right now, if you look at it from the rest of the world's perspective, crypto is not doing that well. Everybody's gaga over chat GPTs and the Cry is basically now AI is going to take over the world. I mean, we've had these kind of situations before. We've and it's usually always led to people putting their heads down and building stuff and uh, building very exciting stuff. So, from your perspective, what do you see coming down that you'd be most excited about for four blockchains and for Web three? Uh, I'll take that a couple different ways. I'll start with the graph, then I'll go to Web three in general. But I'll start by saying, you know, dis debating or at least arguing that crypto isn't doing too well. Because if people look at price, that might be something that they'd say, oh, it's not working well. But builders, more builders than ever are building in the ecosystem. And that is the best bullish leading indicator on what's to come. But I'd say the main focus of the graph right now is enabling, improving, and scaling the decentralized network. As I mentioned, five chains on the network now, and then getting all 39 hosted service chains, and then going beyond that and seeing how to integrate the next wave of chains that aren't already integrated in the hosted service. Aside from that, you mentioned moving to the layer two technology fully. And another thing is right now in the ecosystem, people are wondering why there's not mass adoption because there's not 
killer dApps that are disrupting everything across the Web2 ecosystem. But what's important is building the infrastructure layers first. So, and then increasing adoption, making it as easy as Web2 so the developers can come and build stuff that will attract users. So right now the core dev teams in the graph ecosystem are working on UX or user experience and then DX developer experience upgrades with some big announcements coming in the near term future and even cooler ones coming up in the midterm. One of which was just announced this morning, actually, which is a fiat on-ramp integration that enables data consumers and subgraph developers to fill billing balances with the debit or credit card, getting closer to a true traditional SaaS level experience while still leveraging decentralized technology for the, the absolutely unbeatable uptime. So there's still stuff that needs to be built out within the graph, within other infrastructure layers to make the UX and DX equivalent, if not better than the web two world. And then everyone, more developers will come in and start building. But I'd say for the Web3 ecosystem in general, besides the infrastructure, which I think is most important, you know, blockchains, Oracle solutions, data indexing via the graph, storage solutions like Arweave, Filecoin, and others, and then others that are actually building the technology stack upon which everything else would be built. I mean, DeFi is still, decentralized finance is still eating the world's assets. And, and I don't think that's going to stop. We see traditional finance companies like Goldman, JP Morgan, and others testing out Web3 technologies and growing their digital asset teams, which is a bullish signal. More capital, more minds, more brains will flow into the ecosystem. And there is a big brain drain coming out of Web2, TradFi, like myself and others that are coming into this ecosystem because it's just the most fun and exciting challenge and asymmetric opportunity to build something world changing. And then what's exciting once the infrastructure is built and the user experience is there because the developer experience is there, then we're going to see global disruptors of gaming and social and um, luxury brands that are already testing out NFT technologies. So Adidas, Nike, Reddit, Starbucks, and, and all Coca-Cola, Marvel, all these folks are dipping into the space, seeing how exciting it can be to build, grow a community. And just like anyone in the space, we all had our red pill moment and the aha moment of, wow, this, this can really change things. And it usually started with some skin in the game. And that's what I'm excited about over the next few years. Right now, it's a builder's market because things are less exciting for people who just want to make a quick buck. But it's really exciting for builders that can build something in permissionlessly and not get shut down, you know, not have to apply to Apple for permission to launch their app. Because if you think of blockchains, they're essentially operating systems like Apple or Android, but they're permissionless ecosystems where the developers can take the economics as opposed to giving it to some oligopoly of, of a few different tech companies. So that's super exciting to me. And we're just starting to see edge cases on what NFT technologies can do to disintermediate everything from investment banking transactions to real estate transactions to to everything else uh, with things like the oil and gas tracking hydrocarbons on chain to supply chains being um, being implemented. And then you see federal governments testing out these CBDC initiatives, central bank digital currencies, and mm -hmm. I think people will realize that is just a method to 
perpetuate the control of a government and the blockability of not only your assets, but your interactions, kind of a black mirror level um, episode style of, of just being able to control track and, and be able to ban people from society. And that's the dystopia that I think um, is happening in real time. And I think everyone, uh, maybe not everyone, uh, but I think many people will see the benefits of Web3 permissionless building, permissionless interactions, immediate transactions, uh, not only just of assets, but of it, reputation and so on. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, I think that was a great in- insight in the sense of the graph as well as on the Web3. Uh, it is right now, like you said, absolutely exciting for builders. It's a building time for building. Uh, we're building infrastructure that the foundations need to be put in place before we can actually do the fun stuff, uh, the eye catching stuff. Uh, it would be great uh, for our uh, audience to kind of reach out and uh, learn more about the graph. And, uh, you know, they're developers, at least we target more, quite a few, we, we feel that most of them are developers as well. So maybe they would be interested in building uh, for the graph. So can you share with us uh, some resources uh, or calls to action uh, about that? Absolutely. I'd say the first place is always keeping track of updates and announcements by following the Graph Twitter account, which is at Graph Protocol. And next, people should definitely check out thegraph.com, whether someone wants to look through the documentation, see how to build, see in real time who is using the graph, and even dig into subgraphs themselves and, and maybe even query uh, some on-chain data. I'd also... If you're technical, you said a lot of folks in your audience are developers, I'd hop into the Graph Discord for any technical questions, and we can put the link invite in show notes if you have those, um, as well as the Graph official community telegram for some more high-level questions. But of course, someone can always reach out to me directly on Twitter, LinkedIn, or any other chat medium. My, my handle is pretty much always lowercase Kyle, capital A, lowercase Rojas. And I'm always happy to help where able. I I want to take this opportunity to thank you, uh, Kyle. It was a very good uh, and interesting conversation. And uh, I look forward to seeing what uh, the graph has in store for developers uh, in the future. And I just want to quickly jump in and say the same, Kyle. I thought it was a great conversation. And I thought you explained very well, like, like Nikhil mentioned, you know, not only how the protocol works, but also the relevance of the protocol in the larger Web3 picture going forward. So once again, we want to thank you for your time and uh, we're excited to see what you're building and uh, we want to wish your team all the best. Thanks so much. I appreciate you guys having me. Once again, that was Kyle Rojas from Agent Node. We hope that you enjoyed this deep dive into the graph protocol. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us at bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.